It's a given fact that industry develops around need. And as such, there is in America today a vibrant industry associated with the need to raise up leaders, leaders who know how to lead. I find this kind of interesting. Sahem bin Mira in May of 2020 produced a paper for the British medical journal Leader in which he traces the evolution of leadership theory in the West. His observations to me are fascinating. He notes that whereas in the 1930s and 1940s, most leadership theory centered around the study of leadership traits, traits common to well-known leaders, think top-down approach, such would not work in our world today. Things have changed a bit. Today, we recognize the need to align with leadership principles, not traits, but principles. As we develop cultures in which leaders stand beside, with, and for the members of their teams. In other words, in our world today, servant leadership is in vogue. And as such, an industry has risen up, which provides to today's leaders tools towards developing teams and team cohesiveness. I'm, I'm going to wonder, for example, how many of you listening today have ever experienced through your work environment some type of team building exercise, whether simple or complex? I'll, I'm going to ask it this way. Have you ever participated in a team laser tag exercise? <laughs> I kind of like this idea myself. Laser tag, it, it provides a fun, a safe environment to get your aggression out, out of the system. Um, I mean, workers can, can shoot each other and laugh with each other as they do it. It's just meant to be fun. Have you ever experienced a course uh, of ropes? a rope course exercise. They've been around for a while. In fact, my brother-in-law, who's a former colonel in the U.S. Air Force, helps business leaders in the San Antonio, Texas area form bonds together by doing rope course exercises that are really challenging. You have to work together. One team builder, this one's a bit more expensive, involves team members entering into a wind tunnel designed to produce the effect of skydiving. Participants feel as though they've actually jumped out of an airplane as they work together. You got to work together to safely, safely make it back down to the ground. Then there's one more, the escape room. So I'm just going to ask, have you ever experienced team building through participation in an escape room? The, these rooms initially were developed in Asia. They made their way through Europe and then South America and it landed in America back in about 2010. Uh, they're, they're really kind of interesting to study. Each escape room is unique. They're, they're typically designed after or inspired by video games, which challenge participants to unlock a series of obstacles and hurdles on the way to breaking free. Now, typically, team members are given a defined period of time roughly 45 to 60 minutes, in which you work together to solve problems, almost puzzles, if you will, that allow the team to break free. Each room, of course, calls upon its members mathematically, geographically. Uh, you've got to put your skills to work. So here, here's a side note to you. As of the end of 2020, there's an estimated 50,000 escape rooms operating worldwide the average cost about 25 bucks a customer. Now, I'm setting this before you today because I want to talk to you about 
not just any escape room, but God's escape room, namely that of prayer. Uh, last week, I shared with you that uh, I had a little bit of fun with this. I took, I took out a blank pad of paper, and, and I, I did a pass through the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, trying to identify what I consider to be the best teaching prayers in the Bible. After about an hour and a half, I had listed some 47 prayers. Now, now when I say teaching prayers in the Bible, what I mean are those prayers of the Bible that teach us both how to pray and what prayer is all about. Daniel's prayer, I believe, in chapter 9 is one of these. It's a teaching prayer. So a good way to think about this is through the lens of a 20... 15 movie called War Room, a sleeper hit in America, grows 74 million worldwide. I, I know I've mentioned this film in previous podcasts. I love it. Uh, it's fictional, of course, but it's based on real life. In the film, a wife and a mother, played by Priscilla Schur, learns a lesson about prayer from an elderly real estate agent. And she becomes, of course, a mentor. Her name is Clara. Clara teaches her mentee, wife and mom, what it means to pray. She helps her construct a war room for prayer in her bedroom closet. And it's here that the word escape, in my opinion, becomes significant. What Clara wants her mentee to know is the truth that prayer is not an escape from the realities and difficulties of life. You know what? When we pray, our troubles don't just automatically disappear. They don't. But on the other hand, prayer does something inside of us. Prayer is God at work in us, seeking to bring our minds and our wills in alignment with his own. When we're praying, we may not escape the realities associated with living in a fallen world. However, we can and do find in God his provision toward meeting head on the mazes, the obstacles, the puzzles, the walls that our enemy likes to use in order to block our paths from the delivery that's offered in God's word. In this sense, I believe prayer, Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, becomes a little bit of an escape room. So as we come back to chapter 9 in Daniel's prayer today, allow me to give you two things. Context, I want to remind you of where we are in Daniel's narrative, and then a word. Because I believe that one key word stands out in this section of Daniel's prayer. Let me start with context. Historically, remember with me that we're about 538 BC. Significant because this is the first year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, following the collapse of Babylon. Now, what we know is Daniel has been reading the scroll of Jeremiah which would have been maintained in the king's library. And in his reading, Daniel has discovered something. He's discovered that God is getting ready to act in the lives of the Judeans. Seventy years have passed since the families of Jerusalem have been captured and held captive as slaves. But a new day is dawning. It's time for Israel to go back home. I've always tried to remember this. Uh, today, you and I, we read the narrative of Daniel with a knowledge of what God does in setting Israel free. We know the story, but remember this with me. Daniel didn't, he, he did not know that Cyrus would issue a decree or when exactly this would take place. 
All Daniel had was a promise. 70 years are up, and that was enough. So trusting the promise of God, Daniel, he bends down on his knees and he begins to pray. And it's here that I believe his prayer becomes so helpful, helpful to this day. The reason I like to call this prayer a teaching prayer is it comes around the nature of relationship. This is a prayer of trust. And in the end, it's about one thing, relationship with our creator, the lover of our souls. It's about removing obstacles that the enemy wants to put in the way of our relationship today. And one of the first ones that Daniel prays over is a significant one. Namely, here's the word I want to give you today, shame. As Daniel comes before God, I I want you to hear just one verse. And really, really, I want you to hear one word. You'll find it in verse 7. I'm going to pause for just a minute and and read it for you. I'm going to read out of the ESV again. This is Daniel 9, verse 7. Lord, would you lead us to hear, truly hear this word today? Here's the verse. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel... Those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. I want you to think about what Daniel is saying here. He's praying to God over a promise that's been made. I, God, am getting ready to bring you, Israel, back home. It's a great promise. Daniel, along with all the Judeans, desperately, they want to return to Jerusalem. They want to find escape from the bondage of slavery that's held them captive. But there's another bondage that's holding on to them with a grip more fierce than that of the mouth of a lion. And that's shame. Daniel is writing these words 70 years after the failure of Israel led to the destruction of Jerusalem. 70 years. And yet, Even after 70 years, there's one thing that's holding on to Daniel and his people. There's one thing that still has them in its grip. Quote, to you belongs righteousness, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Now, I don't know what happens inside of you, but these words cause me to recall something I've recognized for a long time. If there is one thing that is hard to escape. It is the power that shame holds over us. No wonder Daniel has entered the escape room of prayer. Lord, would you set us free from shame? Can I ask you a question? What is is it about shame that gives it such power? Well, back, I was doing some reading around this topic, the topic of shame, and I came across some excellent resources toward understanding exactly what it is and why it's one of the most difficult things in the world to escape. So in the world of books, John Bradshaw's classic, uh, a book titled Healing the Shame That Binds You, stands out, does a great job of getting under the causes of shame in our life. John Bradshaw, Healing the Shame That Binds You. Additionally, and, and probably more from a spiritual perspective, is Dr. Brene Brown's book, quote, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. Making the journey from what will people think to 
I Am Enough. It's a great book. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, any of us would do well to read it. So these, these are resources that I regularly recommend to people who are seeking to escape the enemy's grip of shame. So let's just ask the question today. What is it? How would you describe or define shame to another person? So in a recent article for Psychology Today, Dr. Simone Redale offers this definition. I like this definition. Uh, Simone says, quote, shame is defined as a self-critical emotion according to which individuals display a negative consideration of themselves. The effect is a perception of self as defective. One might think, for example, that they are ugly, incompetent, stupid. This is shame. Now, Annette Kamerer adds in her article, The Scientific Underpinnings and Impacts of Shame, that, quote, it is the uncomfortable sensation we feel in the pit of our stomach when it seems we have no safe haven from the judging gaze of others. We feel small and bad about ourselves and we wish we could vanish. Kamer goes on to add that shame and guilt, shame and guilt, they're related, but they're different. And I think her observation is helpful. She states, people often speak of shame and guilt as if they were the same, but they're not. Like shame, guilt occurs when we transgress moral, ethical, or religious norms and criticize ourselves for it. Just kind of get that in your mind. I transgress a moral or an ethical or religious norm, something that I say this is what's right. And because I transgress that, I begin to do what I criticize myself for. It. The difference is when we feel shame, we view ourselves in a negative life. I did something terrible. I am terrible. Whereas when we feel guilt, we view a particular action negatively. I can't believe I did that. I feel bad about what I did. The more one reads about shame, the more you become aware that its effect on our lives is significant. It can lead to hiding, addictions, harsh self-criticism, self-denigration, depression, and ultimately suicide. So, so I'm going to ask you a serious question today. Is it in you right right now? Shame. Even more importantly, how? How will you escape its grip? I'm just going to say this. As a longtime pastor, I have to say one of the things that people find difficult to talk about is their shame. I think psychologists are right. We do, as human beings, have a predisposition to hide our shame, and in particular, its perceived source from everyone. But when it does come out, well, you can begin to see why escaping its grip is difficult. I, I can think about times in my life when people have, have come to me. It's the mom that finally breaks. Pastor, Pastor, I need to meet with you. I'm not who you think I am. I'm the worst person in the world. And she begins to talk about an abortion that she had 23 years ago. The abortion brought guilt, but it's shame that has owned her life for 23 years. She keeps it inside of herself. She's told few, if any, 
but it has dominion over the thoughts of her mind and her perception of her own being. There's the man who's just about ready to take his own life. Pastor, if only you knew who I really am. And he goes on to talk about affairs that he had some 15 years ago. The affairs racked him. They've racked him with guilt. He's hurt people. But it's shame that owns him. Of course, I, I could keep going, but let's, let's not lose the words of Daniel, the words he's speaking here in this scripture. You, he's saying, you, God, you're righteous. You're right in all things. But us, we are held by shame. So why? What, what gives shame its power over us? I have to say that while I so appreciate and I do the wisdom that's grown out of the social sector and the field of psychology in particular, when it comes to shame, there's a dimension that the secular sciences for the most part miss. And I'm talking about the spiritual side of shame. I'm talking about spiritual warfare, the kind the Bible describes when it talks about our battle, not being with physical entities, but with powers of darkness. When it comes to shame, we cannot ever discount the reality that we have an enemy who knows us well. And that enemy, in turn, has an army of fallen angels who mean to do us harm, who mean to separate us from the one who loves our soul. It's not coincidental that the name Satan means the one who accuses, because he does. He will never settle for guilt. Guilt is passing. It's temporary. But shame, shame kills. This is the voice that joins the one inside of our heads, telling us that we're not worth a second of God's time. After all, who are you fooling? Do you really think God could love someone like you? Shame is his specialty, and he's good at it. Which is why I, I believe this prayer, Daniel 9, it's why this prayer matter, matters. I, I think it's good to study the great prayers of Scripture. Because prayers like this one give us insight into how we might combat the voices inside of us and outside of us, voices of shame. I want to quickly identify three things about this prayer in Daniel 9 that I believe are helpful in our battle with shame. I want us to observe that Daniel, who knows his enemy well, is doing this prayer first covenantally. Verse 4, he says, let your covenant form the identity within me. That's what removes my shame. He's saying, God, I am who I am, not because of what I do or what I've done, but I am who I am because of who you say, who you say I am, Lord. You've made a covenant. You've called me your son, and you will never break that covenant. That has power over shame. Second, notice he's confessional. He owns what's happened. He does. Uh, when you begin to own what happens in your life, you, you remove the power of the devil to accuse you. He says, listen, have I done this? Yes, I have. I confess it. I confess it and I place it into God's hands. And that's the third thing. He's future facing. He's future facing. Um, he's saying, you know, there, there was a time when we didn't listen to you, God, but there's a future too. There's tomorrow and it's time to listen. It's time to let your voice be the one that I hear, your voice of grace, the voice of, of your words when you call us your own, when you lift us up, and when you tell us you love us. 
So I, I want to close today um, with a, uh, just a couple of thoughts that, that I think are important. Here's the first one. I, I want to start by just saying it's pretty likely that you or someone that you love or is close to you is fighting a silent battle with shame, even now. With few exceptions, most of us will face this enemy within some point in our lives, if, if not at multiple points. And what I absolutely want you to know is that if you're fighting today with voices inside of you that are self-deprecating, you're not odd, you're not weird, and you're certainly not alone. Sometime this week, I want to invite you to do two things. Number one, get enough quiet space around you to stop and ask yourself a question. Are there thoughts inside of me that are centered in shame? If so, what are the self-messages that I'm producing? What am I telling myself about me? That's silently killing me. Secondly, this might not be you. You might, you might be doing pretty well right now. And if so, I say hallelujah. I mean, I, I rejoice with you. But what about the people around you? The people that you are closest to. Here's the second question I want you to engage this week. Is there someone that I love that's battling shame? If you do discern that there's someone that you love, and who is the voice of shame, pray for them extra hard. They need your prayers. Additionally, if you have opportunity to spend some time with them, ask them how they're doing. And don't stop with the superficial answer they'll give you. I'm fine. Couldn't be doing better. No. Dig down a little bit. Ask them. How are you really doing? How's your soul doing? And then just listen. Here's my second big thought or question. As you, as you seek to discern what's going on inside of you as well as inside of those closest to you, ask yourself this question. Is there a person that you trust to share your battle with? Is there someone that you trust enough that you can simply say, hey, you know what? I want to talk to you this week about a part of my life that I really don't share with many people. Can we pull together and just talk? I keep inside of me the words of Jesus who once said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Additionally, I think the words, I think about the words of James who said, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There's something powerful that happens in the scriptural and spiritual realm. When you come together with another follower of Jesus Christ and within a trust filled relationship, you lay down what's inside of you and you get it out. You put the truth on the table, no matter how hard it is. Why? Because Jesus said the truth is the first step toward becoming set free. There's such a thing as healing for shame, but it isn't easy. Sometimes it takes a long time to overcome. Yet there is such power, such power in coming together with another Jesus follower and beginning that journey. And then there's one last big thought or question. Here it is. Is it possible that a Christian counselor might be needed? I think there's times in our life when shame, the shame we're carrying has such deep roots that we do. We need a Christian counselor to walk with us. Someone from the outside who helps discover the right path toward being set free from this insidious enemy. I want to encourage you. If you need someone to guide you, don't, don't wait. Reach out. There are counselors who can serve you. Today, I want to entrust this prayer of Daniel to you. Think, think about this single message. Shame can be overcome. Again, I won't tell you it's easy. 
I won't tell you that your journey to do so will be uh, filled with simplicity, but there is a sense in which the presence of God allows us to escape the grip of one of our greatest foes. There is life beyond shame. Well, that's it for this edition of God Size Living. I, I want you to celebrate with me today. Uh, believe it or not, this episode marks exactly one full year of episodes. Now, I have to tell you that when I started down the path of putting this podcast together, I had no idea of what it would take to put each episode together. That said, my prayer is that these short journeys into Scripture are helpful and encouraging to you. Until then, pray for me. I'll be praying for you and your family and have a God-sized week.